Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the brave new world. This week, number five is alive. A deep dive into the most consequential report of the Digital Platform Services Inquiry so far. The long-awaited interim report number five proposes a new framework for digital platforms. And we're joined by Kate Reader, who heads up the ACCC's Digital Platforms Branch, to talk about the future of regulation for those platforms in Australia and around the world. Competition policy should be continually discussed and renewed. I don't want competition policy from the 1900s or the 1950s any more than I want privacy policy from the 1950s or social policy or health policy. So I think we should continue to keep having these debates about what's important and how it should be progressed and what should be at the centre of competition policy. But first, Matt. What's been happening around the grounds? Well, the ACCC is reporting its first formal enforcement result based solely on the newish prohibition against concerted practices, which was introduced in 2017 following the recommendations of the Harper Review. And a concerted practice is where you've got an orchestra of contract players with no understanding of the arrangement, but they're trying to coordinate? Uh, That's a concert practice, I think. A concerted practice is a level of coordination or orchestration, if you like, which doesn't reach the level of a contract arrangement or understanding, but isn't fully independent competition either. Uh, Isn't that what I said? Uh, No, it is. The idea is that you're substituting a level of cooperation for what would otherwise be the uncertainty of competition. It often involves sharing information about prices or plans, and that's an area where the ACCC has in the past struggled to prove any commitment to do anything, but it does feel like there's a purpose or effective lesson in competition. Now, this one was an investigation of a turf breeder, which I guess is someone who invents or discovers new kinds of grass that you can use for turf, maybe in your garden or more importantly, on a sports field. Exactly. Uh, the World Cup, for example, is exclusively using Platinum TE Paspalum, which is developed by Dr. Ron R. Duncan at the University of Georgia. It's a seashore Paspalum with a very high salt tolerance. Definitely a step up from the artificial turf that was uh, controversially used at the Women's World Cup back in 2015. You would think. The turf breeder here is Lawn Solutions Australia, which holds the rights to a kikuyu grass and a couple of varieties of prickly cooch, and previously held the rights to Sir Walter Buffalo grass until they expired. And who was Sir Walter Buffalo? (laughs) Apparently there was no Sir Walter at all. No Sir Walter? It's an acronym for Winter Active Low Thatch Environmentally Responsible, though that might be a kind of suburban legend. Well, I remember buffalo grasses being a bit rough, so maybe for your backyard, but not for the World Cup. I think that's right. Lawn Solutions has provided an undertaking where it says that it actually shared retail price information among its growers and its resellers. It asked them to set their prices in line with its recommended prices, and it put pressure on the ones who didn't. It also said that it contacted another turf breeder about the prices being charged by their growers and resellers for their version of the Sir Walter grass. But presumably they hadn't done enough for that to be resale price maintenance or an arrangement or understanding. Yeah, that's how it sounds. So Lawn Solutions have promised not to share information that the growers could use to infer each other's pricing, not to ask them to raise their prices, and not to communicate with other turf breeders with a view to controlling prices. And they got away without a financial penalty here. So I guess they were trying to avoid some kind of battle over territory or control of an outdoor area. What would you call that, Matt? Uh, I guess maybe a grass dispute, a lawn conflict, a sword fight. We could just call it a turf war. (laughs) Never. (laughs) Well, the team have put together an update that we'll link to in the show notes. What else is going on? Well, the International Association of Privacy Professionals has just held a summit in Sydney, and both Attorney General Mark Dreyfus and Information and Privacy Commissioner Angeline Fork gave some remarks. I wasn't there, but luckily MLEX was. 
I know they've been looking at the privacy framework for a while now, but there's a new sense of urgency, isn't there, after the recent data breaches? There really is. Commissioner Falk argued for new remedies and powers for her office, including infringement notices that can be issued without going to court, as well as the power to create codes of conduct, which they've also raised in submissions to the review of the Privacy Act. That's the review that's meant to be done by Christmas? That's right. And the Attorney General said that they would deliver their final report to the government this year, so they must be pretty confident. We probably won't see it until next year, especially if the government wants to release a detailed response. So we're still a way off any actual changes, by the sounds. Yeah, the AG said he's committed to reforms during this term of parliament, while Commissioner Falk said she hoped there'd be draft legislation in the first half of 2023 and that everything would pass by the end of the year. Well, let's hope it doesn't distract from the Women's World Cup. But we're a lot closer to seeing increases in the civil penalties now for serious or repeated breaches of the privacy principles, aren't we? We are. That bill has just passed both houses and it'll come into effect the day after it receives royal assent. So that's kind of reinforced the maximum civil penalty framework of $50 million or three times the benefit or 30% of adjusted turnover as the dominant framework for these corporate penalties, even though it's always had problems as a framework. Yeah, and there were some concerns in the Senate about how the three times the benefit part would work for a privacy breach, weren't there? There were. And also with the way a repeated or serious interference of privacy might be defined Mm -hmm. and how you might deal with interferences that weren't repeated or serious. And of course, the review of the Privacy Act will give them another chance to look at some of those issues. So basically, it's never going to end. It never does. Well, on a slightly different topic, partner Peter Reeves and his fintech payment team here have an update on the Treasury consultation on regulatory options for the buy now, pay later sector. So this is where you buy something that's usually not too expensive and you get it right away and pay for it in instalments. And you might pay an administrative fee or a penalty if you miss a payment, but you don't pay interest. Yeah, I mean, I remember lay-by where the shop would just put something behind the counter for you and you'd pay for it over time, but you couldn't take it home until you pay for the whole thing. Bad old days. Yeah, this new way sounds like a much better deal. Well, it does, but because you're paying little or no interest or fees, the providers aren't actually subject to the usual credit regulation and you might end up with a repayment obligation that you just can't afford, just like any other kind of credit, I guess. That's right. And there is already a code of practice for BNPL providers, as they're called, where the providers agree to some checks that are a bit like the responsible lending obligations that a credit provider might have. Right. And Treasury's first option is to make that code mandatory and introduce an affordability test for all customers. Their second option is to require BNPL providers to hold a credit license and comply with some of the regulations in the Credit Act. And the third option is basically to treat BNPL providers like any other credit provider. That's right. So there's quite a range. I saw that Treasury is also thinking about making sure that merchants can pass on the charges that they pay to the BNPL providers, which is something that seems to come up with every new payment system that comes around. Yeah, I guess if you think about it, if the merchants can't pass through their costs then every customer who pays up front is subsidising the ones who buy now and pay later. Yeah, nothing's free. The consultation period's open till the 23rd of December 2022, so get yours in and give Treasury a nice Christmas present. Time for one more before our deep dive? Well, there's been a potentially seismic event for antitrust in the US. I'm talking, of course, about Taylor Swift's new tour. She made history recently as the first artist to take out every spot in the Billboard Top 10 all at the same time. Wow. And after breaking that record, she broke Ticketmaster when pre-sales for her new Eras tour crashed the website and led to long queues and a lot of angry Swifties. A lot of bad blood, would you say? Yeah, I suppose. But a lot of people are now blaming the lax antitrust enforcement of the early 21st century. Ugh, blame the lawyers. This goes back to 2010 when Ticketmaster bought Live Nation, which was primarily involved in promoting events and operating venues, but was getting into ticketing. Yeah, and the Justice Department took the merger parties to court, but eventually settled after Ticketmaster agreed it would create or support new competitors in ticket sales 
by licensing or divesting parts of its platform, and it wouldn't use its power to exclude or disadvantage any competitors. Now, those competitors do still exist, but in terms of any real challenge to its position, I guess Ticketmaster's been able to shake it off, shake it off. Okay, I get it now. Look what you made me do. (laughs) And in 2019, the DOJ extended and expanded its consent decree after it found Ticketmaster had been threatening or retaliating against venues that tried to use its competitors. And after the Taylor Swift debacle, it's reportedly investigating again. I knew you were trouble, it said in a press release. Senator Amy Klobuchar has sent them a please explain and convened a hearing of the Senate Antitrust Committee. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has said that the merger should never have happened and should now be undone. Well, if the Swifties are getting involved, you wouldn't bet against it. It's a powerful coalition. Fearless, even. The argument here is that Ticketmaster's monopoly position has raised fees and ticket prices, and also that it's reduced the kind of investment in ticketing systems that might have prevented the outages and delays that the Taylor Swift fans are going through now. And if the DOJ can show that Ticketmaster has breached its consent decree, it will owe them a fair chunk of change. You need to calm down. Well, it's time to go to the deep dive. Anywhere to get away from these Taylor Swift puns. Moya, you recently spoke to Kate Reader, who's the general manager of the ACCC's digital platforms branch and oversees the digital platform services inquiry, about the fifth interim report, repo number five. Yes, I did. And Kate had some great insights into the way the inquiry came about. And I now understand why repo number five is like a Gina Cass Gottlieb halftime talk. Let's take a listen. I'm delighted to welcome back to Gilbert and Tobin, Kate Reader, who is now the General Manager of the Digital Platforms Branch at the ACCC. She once worked here many eons ago, but has gone on to much bigger and greater things. Kate, welcome. Thank you, Maya. It's lovely to be here. Tell us how you came to be the General Manager of Digital Platforms at the ACCC. Well, it was a bit of a journey. So I started at the ACCC a very, a very, very long time ago in the Brisbane office. And I went down to the Melbourne office and I actually worked in telecommunications regulation for a couple of years. I was lucky enough to be sent to the Hong Kong telecommunications regulator on secondment with some other ACCC staff. I got the travel bug, went on to London for five years, working for the energy regulator over there and then the rail and road regulator. And then I came back to Australia and had a brief but very enjoyable stint at GNT and was lucky to work with people like Gina and Peter Waters. And then I went back to government to the Australian Communications and Media Regulator and then circled back to the ACCC. Is there any industry that you haven't regulated? Water, I think, is probably the only where I haven't been. And part of the reason I didn't go to the water regulator in the UK because they were based in Birmingham. Okay. She's not an Aston Villa supporter, I'm guessing. And probably horses' hooves as well. Peter Waters did tell us in a previous episode about a regulator of horses' feet. Yeah, there are lots of really super fascinating regulators, particularly in the UK. There's little niche regulators. When I first arrived in the UK, I worked for the Standards Board for England, which regulates parish councils. So that was a fascinating job and parish councils have lots of issues. So remind us how we got here, because we're up to report number five, which my co-host Matt Rubenstein has kindly dubbed Repo number five and actually put to music of Mambo number five, but that's in a previous episode. Now that the adults are in the room, tell us a little bit about how we got here. Well, I think that Matt vastly improved on those Mambo number five lyrics. He truly did. He truly did. So people may have forgotten the original digital platforms inquiry kind of came out of the interest of a number of particular MPs who were really driven by regional news issues. They were very concerned about local newspapers in their areas who were folding. They felt that somehow that was the fault of the digital platforms, that that was their perception. And they really pushed for an inquiry into the impact of digital platforms on regional news. 
when we got the terms of reference, they also included the impact on advertisers and consumers, which, as you can imagine, is a much bigger, <laughs> bigger scoped project. That's a lot of people. It is a lot of people. Is there anyone uh, who's not an advertiser or a consumer? Yeah. Well, of the digital platforms, I'd say there's hardly anyone who isn't yeah. a consumer. So it, it was a very large project. And so we looked at ways to kind of try and scope it down and focus on the issues. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, why is that first report very focused on Google and Facebook was now Meta? And part of the reason was that was the feedback that we were getting at the time about the news media businesses. That was where news referrals were coming from. That was where most people were viewing news. So we focused on those platforms. But the scope could have been a lot broader <laughs> if we'd had more time. 18 months is not a lot of time to unpack a lot of issues with advertisers, consumers and news media businesses and also journalists with digital platforms. And of course, in 18 months, a lot changes in this world too. So if you took it much does. longer, then it would have, I don't know, whatever you were studying at the start might not have even been there by the end. Yeah. Like over the course of the 18 months, like early on, sort of a couple of months into the um, into the start of the inquiry process, we had Cambridge Analytica and that sort of fundamentally shifted a lot of our thinking about what consumer issues should we look at? What should we care about? What should we focus on? I think also like a lot of businesses at the time, Amazon was not into streaming at that particular time. Apple News was very small. So the landscape changes quite significantly over time. So report number five is a little different to the first four, isn't it? Just tell us why that is. So originally the the DPSI, which is the five-year inquiry, we sort of envisaged that possibly we would do a number of reports over that time and then we would get to the tenth report and then have a big wrap-up that would pull out common themes and possibly make recommendations to government. In the way of the world that is digital, we found things were moving actually quite quickly, particularly in Europe, but also in the US and lots of other jurisdictions, including Korea and Japan. And we thought, oh, well, now seems like a good time, the halfway mark, half time to, uh, oh, to like actually, that. you like We're going all World Cup. <laughs> we're going all World Cup. <laughs> to actually stop and say, well, a lot of other jurisdictions are looking at regulatory measures. We've actually done quite a bit of work since 2017 looking at these issues. And the Advertising Services Inquiry, we've got quite a bit of material now, maybe is the right time to do the stop take, decide is what we have in terms of the legal framework adequate or do we need something else? Oh, so maybe a few subs coming on, a bit of a change of formation in the Gina halftime talk. Yes, yeah, so that's true. Well, we did, like, through the process of five, we had a chair replacement, if you like, a sub on. And we also had new commissioner join the Digital Platforms Board, Liza Carver. So we had quite a bit of a change of dynamic. So how did you decide what territory to cover in number five? So I think we were quite driven by what was going on overseas, particularly Europe was moving quite quickly with the DMA compared to a lot of other legislative processes. The Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act seem to be moving at a really rapid pace. There were a large number of bills being put up in the US by various political parties. So we wanted to contribute our thinking. We'd done quite a bit of work. We had a fairly good idea. We identified a number of harms over the previous reports and we thought, you know, rather than wait till the 10th report and be left behind in this sort of discussion, that now was the right time for us to, to take a step back. So it is quite a different interim report than the other reports, which very much focus on sort of deep dives in particular sets of products and services. Indeed. So tell us a little bit about your industry consultations. I mean, it's a bit like being a ref, right? It's not always easy and everyone's got a point of view and they like to share it with you, maybe from close range at volume. I think it's fair to say there was a pretty steep learning curve and we made some mistakes early on with the original digital platforms inquiry. We had these sort of small business and consumer 
forums that we ran and, and hardly anyone turned off. And actually that makes sense because maybe the way to engage with people was digitally rather than having sort of a town hall meeting and expecting random average consumers to turn up. But we did on the original DPI and then subsequently we have run workshops or roundtables where we get people into talk. My impression is that stakeholders respond better when they have something to talk to. So when we've given them sort of, look, this is what we're interested in hearing from you. This is what we want to talk about. Come prepared to talk about this rather than having a bit of a messy free-for-all. I know some of the platforms themselves weren't happy with some of our early forums where it was a bit more of a free-for-all. And there is something, I think, in the idea that the bigger entities, they have lawyers and departments of people in government relations and so on who are capable of engaging with those processes, who are professionals at engaging with those processes. But if you look at a, you know, like a random street corner business, they're probably too busy to even shut up shop and join your town hall. I mean, how do you make sure you hear the voices of those smaller businesses? We tried a number of different strategies. So we were super conscious of that issue in the original DPI with the small media businesses. So we tried really hard to be conscious when we were asking regional newspapers. We were like, tell us how many readers you have. Tell us what your reach is. Tell us how much you earn, how many journalists you have. Like, it's probably only two guys. And so there's no legal regulatory person. There's no law firm who's going to go away and do all that work. So I think we had to really think about what we were asking them and how they were engaging with us. We had lots of one-on-ones with them where they just came and talked through how their businesses worked. And that was really useful for us and for commissioners to hear So tell us about the recommendations. I mean, if you're at a dinner party and someone says, what have you been doing, Kate? And you say, I've just dropped this digital platform services inquiry. And they go, oh, that's nice. What does it say? I I think most people would wander off, uh, to be (laughs) honest. uh, Is there more wine? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. So we only made four recommendations. We're moving our way down from, you know, electricity was 80 plus to, you know, the original DPI, which was 23. Now we're down to four. So two of those are consumer focused and two are competition and the two competition are kind of bound up together. So on the consumer side, we've reiterated what we've said in previous reports about economy-wide measures, so the unfair trading practices. We're still really engaged with that and pushing for that. On the second recommendation on the consumer side, we're looking at more specific measures targeted at digital platforms and that's all digital platforms. We want to capture everyone who engages with consumers in a meaningful kind of way. So obviously not if you've got three or four users, but if you have a meaningful number of users, we think these obligations should apply to you. And these are things like scams and trying to stop some of the real, really damaging stuff that's popping up at the moment. And mostly they're process type obligations. So they're notice and action, like, like, do you have a procedure in place to take down some things if you're notified that this is a scam, for example? They're about having internal dispute resolution processes in place, those kind of things where we're trying to get the platforms to have procedures and processes in place to do a bit more work to minimise consumer issues. To be fair, a lot of the platforms are telling us they're doing this stuff already. So I'm hopeful that there'll be less of an issue with these types of process obligations because I do think that a lot of the platforms do have these processes in place already. I think that's probably right, but in a world of startups too, it's a reminder that you might be a virtual looking business, but you have to have real processes that consumers can use to address harms. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest complaints that we hear from consumers, but also from small businesses, I can't talk to anyone. When my small business page gets taken down, you know, I can't reach anyone to try and get that fixed. But that's basic sort of consumer service, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that not knowing 
is really interesting, particularly when you look at things like electronic marketplaces. Oftentimes, if you're buying on a marketplace, you don't actually know who you're buying off. It could be a dropshipping type arrangement, or you don't actually know anything about the supplier other than what they've presented on the page. So I think all these measures are about increasing transparency and having processes in place so that digital platforms can treat their customers a bit better. So maybe some of them already do and they're happy to continue to do this. We really, really want them to be mandatory processes so that everyone, no matter how, if you're a big platform or a small one, you still have to have the same procedures in place. Basic standards. It's interesting because we're now in a world where people are wanting to interrogate the supply chain a bit more and wanting to know if this cheap thingy that I bought off the internet was made by a child slave somewhere on the other side of the world. And I think Europe is looking harder at getting regulation in that sort of area. But I guess what you're talking about is just the really basic stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that another part of the ACCC has done quite a lot of work on is product safety. And so often when you're buying, you're not actually sure, does this conform to an Australian safety standard or not? And, you know, where was this built? Was it built in line with product safety requirements? And people are concerned about that. Nobody wants to buy like a $2 cheap cable online that then burns their house down. So that's the bucket of consumer issues that are addressed through the first two measures. Tell us now about the other two. On the competition side, there's two recommendations which are basically bound up together. And the first is that there would be a mechanism introduced to designate certain large platforms that have been identified as having a critical place in the economy. And once those platforms are designated, or at the same time, we haven't actually specified if it should be sequential or not, there would be codes developed for specific services that would have essentially upfront rules in them about how these particular platforms should behave in relation to that service. So they're service-specific codes that would only apply to specific designated platforms. And what sort of things do you have in mind for the codes and the content of those codes? So in one of the chapters of a report, we've set out some of the issues that we've seen across our various reports. They include things like bundling and tying and self-preferencing. So in our electronic marketplaces report, we didn't find market power in relation to any particular entity, but we did identify that, for example, if a marketplace did have market power and it was self-preferencing its own products over other people in the marketplace, that that might be of a real concern. So it's a kind of vertical integration issue, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And what do you have to do to get designated or what do you have to not do to not get designated? So we've made some suggestions to government about the various ways in which you could designate. They include quantitative measures, including things like user numbers, like you know, how big they are, how critical they are to the economy. There's also a qualitative factors, you know, do they have market power, that kind of thing. There could be a combination of both, so quantitative and qualitative. That's for the government to determine, but we've set out the various methods in which we think that could be done. And it'll be interesting to see the feedback from market participants about what they think is the best criteria for designation. So there'll be a consultation process about this? My understanding is, yes, that the government will have a consultation process. Okay. No Christmas for you then? No. (laughs) Probably haven't had one for years. Well, unfortunately, with the six monthly reports, Christmas is always a bit challenging. You talked a little bit about international regulators and watching the trends that are happening overseas. What's in repo number five? Is that getting ahead of what's happening overseas? Is Australia ahead of the curve or behind it, do you think? I, I don't think we are ahead of the curve at the moment. It seems to me that Europe is quite definitely at the front of the pack right now. They love a bit of regulation um, in Europe, don't they? They do. 
But I think that provides us with a great opportunity to learn from what they're going through in Europe and their experience of implementing the DMA. So I don't think we're at the forefront anymore. I think we were at the forefront when we did the DPI, particularly in the work that we did looking at the overlap of privacy and consumer and competition issues and kind of trying to address them in a coherent way. But I think in terms of the regulatory competition response, I think that now a lot of other jurisdictions are far out in front. And I think that's actually of benefit to us as a smaller country. And a lot will depend on what is in the codes and how broadly they're applied. Yeah. And I think we're hoping that if the government goes forward with our recommendations, that the codes will be targeted and flexible and able to be used in such a way that they're directed at specific harms or problems we've identified but also in a way that's, that's quite flexible and can be changed when circumstances change. So the more progressive regulatory efforts that we're seeing in some parts of the world used to be called hipster antitrust. Is that a compliment to say you're a hipster? Uh, are we hipsters? Are you a hipster? I think it's very useful to have this debate about what competition policy is about and what it should be about. And I think it's very important that more and more countries should contribute. I think competition policy should be continually discussed and renewed. I don't want competition policy from the 1900s or the 1950s any more than I want privacy policy from the 1950s or social policy or health policy. So I think we should continue to keep having these debates about what's important and how it should be progressed and what should be at the centre of competition policy. So tell us about DPREG. What is DPREG and why is it so much fun? So DPREG is a collection of regulators who work in the digital space. In the original digital platform inquiry, we found we were talking to the Office of Information Commission of the OAIC quite a bit because we were looking at privacy terms and conditions and we knew they were as well. So we, we were talking to them about those issues. We also obviously spent a long time talking to the ACMA. We had staff from the ACMA seconded to the Digital Platforms Inquiry to work with us on media issues. So we had these ongoing discussions already. And then when the eSafety Commission was set up, we thought, well, we should all meet as a group of four. And then over time, that became a bit more formalised. And then we moved to sort of formally calling it DP Reg after quite a bit of debate about what we should be called. And then now we meet regularly and the heads of agency meet regularly to discuss kind of overlap issues. Obviously, we all have our own separate regulatory remits and we're not attempting to get into each other's space in that sense. But it is really helpful, particularly when we're all considering doing things like codes, that we all talk about how those codes are working, what the pitfalls are. Like It's about practical management of overlap, I think. Well, when the issues arise, increasingly they're so cross-industry and so broad that they don't land in the remit of just one regulator. So this is really about having, I guess, a coherent policy approach across regulators. And interestingly, am I right, they're all women? They are. Currently, the heads of agency are all women. And a couple of meetings ago, we had a meeting with heads of agency and they all brought their seconds, if you like, sorry to use the fencing analogy, to the meeting and they were all women as well. It was a, a fantastic environment to sit in. Wow, it'll be interesting to see if that influences the, the way that regulation unfolds in the future. I mean, they've got nearly enough for a five-a-side team. They only <laughs> need one more. Well, I, I, think, I think we've had discussions around adding further regulators, but maybe we should wait till there's a female head of a relevant regulator we can add. <laughs> Invite her into the room. Right. Very good. What about content moderation? So I think it's a really interesting topic, and we did look at it a bit in the original Digital Platforms Inquiry because we were looking at media and content issues. And I think it's one of those really challenging areas, particularly for countries like the US that have that really strong focus on freedom of speech mm -hmm. and they can't seem to accept that content moderation might be appropriate. 
or might be needed in some circumstances. I think that's the advantage that Australia and other jurisdictions like the UK have in that they're more prepared to consider balancing those issues, balancing the need for democracy or the need to protect minority groups with the freedom of speech. I think it's a lot harder for countries like America that have that deeply ingrained belief that freedom of speech sort of overrides everything else. There was a very interesting piece in The Herald by Catherine Lumby who talked about free speech. She says, Vic Aladef, who spearheaded a 2018 campaign which achieved a New South Wales law against incitement to violence on the basis of race, religion, gender and sexual identity, notes that everything begins with words. The Holocaust didn't begin with the gas chambers, he says. It began by demonising, marginalising, isolating, so that violence was the next logical step in the gradation of othering. It is a given that free speech is a cherished value, yet so are the democratic principles which, if left unfiltered, it threatens to trample. I think that's the reason why the work of our partners in DPREG, particularly eSafety and the ACMA on their Mis and Disinformation Code, is quite an important piece of the puzzle when we consider digital platforms overall. I think the government has recognised we do need something in place to deal with with mis- and disinformation, and we do need laws and frameworks in place to deal with the horrible cyberbullying and the harmful content that is directed at particular people online. I mean, I think there's a fundamental tension, or maybe it's a complementarity, actually, between democracy and human rights. They say democracy is when two wolves and a sheep decide what to have for lunch, right? And that shows why... In addition to democracy, it's important to have a framework of basic rights. You talk about privacy, e-safety. I mean, these are the things that in a truly democratic society need to be protected as well as the old majority rules. You know, it's obviously very important for competitive markets to be ruthlessly competitive because that encourages innovation and better products. But I think it's also important to have safeguards and safeguards in relation to privacy, in relation to things like product safety, in relation to basic consumer protections, because that ruthless competition can drive pretty poor outcomes in some circumstances, particularly where there's bad actors involved, you know, for consumers. So what's next on these digital platform services inquiries? Dare we talk about number six yet? We are in the middle of number six right now. The challenge of the six monthly reporting cycle is aggressive. So relentless, isn't it? It is relentless. So it means we're never still. But I mean, that that is not a bad thing. It reflects the changing dynamics of these markets. We're currently looking into social media services. We put an issues paper out earlier this year. We've had quite a bit of engagement from the parties and we'll be working on that over Christmas and intend to hand the report to the Treasurer on the 31st of March. And then Report 7 will follow after that. And I cannot tell you the topic because I do not know (laughs) as of yet. And in the meantime, some of these measures that are suggested in Repo 5 may or may not have hit the ground by the time you get to the end of this road. Yeah. So as I've said to a number of stakeholders in the past, the commissioners choose the topics as we go. So we deliberately didn't set out a a set of topics because we wanted to be flexible about how we would address certain issues as they arise. You know, Meta raised the issue of TikTok's entry and the impact on social media. And we thought that was a good thing to revisit. Going forward, commissioners will look at what the issue is of the day, what they're interested in to be the topic for Report 7. So It it is great. It allows us quite a bit of flexibility, but it's also challenging because we can't plan out too far ahead. Well, thank you very much for coming in today, Kate. It's been a pleasure to see you again and to speak with you about the uh, work that you're doing at the ACCC. Thank you very much for having me. What a great interview. 
I noticed reading the report that they don't say who's going to be in charge of designating a digital platform or who's going to make the ex ante or upfront rules. They just say the relevant regulator. But there's a pretty good chance, I guess, it'll be the ACCC. Well, some of our previous guests have made the point that an enforcement agency like the ACCC might not be the best ones to make and then enforce the upfront rules, while it's also enforcing the existing competition and consumer law. I have said that. On the other hand, the ACCC does have all this expertise now, uh, and it's going to be easier for the government to tap into that rather than skilling up another regulator or creating a whole new one, as has been discussed. And I feel like we've been hearing about unfair trading practices for a long time now. The interim report refers to 10 previous inquiries, submissions and speeches where it's called for a new prohibition to deal with those. But there must be more than that. Do we know what's going on there? We know that the ACCC is concerned about certain business practices that have arisen in digital platforms, but also have offline versions like dark patterns, for example. And they've pointed previously at the approaches in the EU and the US, which are actually quite different from each other if you look at them, and kind of sit in a different context from Australia, where we already have unconscionable conduct and specific unfair practices prohibitions. But that's a long story. Well, they do say they're working with the states and territories to come up with some options. Yeah, and they have been since the ACL review in 2017. But the forum that was working on that stuff was disbanded nearly two years ago. And I don't know where the work is taking place right now. It'll be interesting to see where it pops up and whether we'll get some details about what the prohibition might look like. Indeed. Well, it's exciting to think that they haven't decided on what DPSI number seven should be about yet. You know, there have been some great number sevens over the years. We've had uh, Kenny Dalgleish and Harry Kuehl, who were number sevens at Liverpool. And of course, Steph Catley is Arsenal's number seven now. Uh, Do you have any predictions in your crystal ball, Luis Suarez? Please don't say Ronaldo. I won't say Ronaldo. So far, we've done private messaging. We've done app stores. We've done choice in web browsers and search engines. That's not Ronaldo. (laughs) Then there's online retail marketplaces and now regulatory frameworks. Next up is social media. It looks like there's time for three more interim reports after that, and then a final report in March 2025. Yeah, I guess if it were up to me, it'd be, how come there are so many video conferencing services that I'm always in the wrong one? That's one of the burning questions, is it? I mean, usually if you just click on the link... Hey, printers, why don't they work? I'm not sure if that's really a digital... Why is everything a subscription now? What happened to just buying something? So basically, interim reports seven through nine are just, get off my lawn. Get off my turf. Oh, there it is. Well, that's all for 2022. You can check out the show notes for the team's in-depth analysis of interim report number five and other relevant links. And remember, you can email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au or follow us on Twitter at gtcompedge. And we've got some great guests to come next year, including partner Simon Moss on developments in Europe and special counsel Sarah Lynch with Report Report. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. <laughs>